This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name's Claire Clark. I'm one of the hosts on this channel. And today we're talking to Eric Hayo a distinguished professor of comparative literature and Asian studies at the Pennsylvania State University and the author of the new book, Humanist Reason, a History, an Argument, a Plan, which is just out from Columbia University Press. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's really an honor to be here. Eric, I'm I'm excited to talk to you today. I, I, I love this book. It, so much food for thought in here. Um, I wondered if you could begin our interview by just telling us a little bit about yourself. So how, how, did, you, um, how did you get to be a distinguished professor at the Pennsylvania <laughs> State University? Yeah, well, so <laughs> I, um, I mean, I, I grew up multilingual. Um, and I carried that set of interests with me into college. And, um, I grew up as someone who loved to read. I grew up as someone who loved to write. And, um, and then I had a class in my junior year of college, uh, with a guy named Henry Schwartz. It was a class on, um, post-colonial literature. And it was one of those magic classes that, that, turns you into or gives you someone to be i mean that is i i you know henry was young he had just finished his phd at duke um and he was in his first or second year at georgetown and um i just thought he was he was the coolest and smartest and most interesting and i basically wanted to be just like him and one of the things that henry had done uh he was from a just a white guy from a town somewhere in uh uh, uh i think either jersey uh or uh, in any case, somewhere there, and he is that he had learned Bengali um, as part of his PhD work, and I th- thought that was amazing. And I decided that I should learn a non-Western language, um, and so I spent uh, some time. I started studying Chinese, and then during so I went to grad school to get a PhD in in English. Uh, literature, but along the way, I learned Chinese and spent a year in China and got a fellowship to be there and to work on my first book, which was on the influence of China on European literature and philosophy, mainly in the 20th century. And um, and so that was, you know, that was kind of part of what I did. And I was really lucky to have an amazing advisor who taught me a lot about writing and about the kind of the forms of psychological discipline necessary to write and to think well. And, um, so that was amazing and, and incredibly powerful. Her name was Jane Gallup is Jane Gallup. And, um, and so that, you know, that got me launched into the profession in my, you know, the first kind of 10 years of my career, basically writing about two books, ultimately the, my dissertation, which became the first book. And then the second book about the, the ways in which Europe dealt with its encounter with China after the sort of 1580s, um, forward. And, 
you know, by the end of that second book, I at some point I had an idea for another book on on literary worlds, uh, and so I wrote that book. And then at some point I wrote a book about writing, which is probably what I'm most famous for. I don't know if it's what I'm most distinguished for, but but it's what I'm most famous for, which is this book on called The Elements of Academic Style, which is a book about how to write. Um, and for you know, for anyone who's working in the humanities, more or less. I mean, it's it's a lot of it's literature specific because that's my field, but. Um, that was a book where I, I kind of made a transition, I think, between someone who was whose teaching and writing lives were completely separate to someone who was actually writing about teaching. Uh, and that's stayed a little bit true here and there. I mean, I've bounced around. But um, but I think that that one of the things that that I learned in that book was that there were things that I was doing when I was teaching that I could carry over into my writing that people really valued and liked. And one of the things that's been really gratifying about the Elements book is that people have written me from all over the world and said how much it helped them. Um, and so I think with the new book, part of what I was trying to do was to manage for myself something like the relationship between writing that is doing teaching work and writing that is doing scholarly work and trying to think about how to bring those two together um, in ways that seemed interesting. In any case, I mean, I guess that's, I mean, you end up being a distinguished professor because of, you know, because you have good teachers and because you write books and, you know, because you're able to sort of sustain a level of intensity and interest in, in a set of topics for long enough that uh, at some point they have no choice, but to, <laughs> but to give you the title. Um, but that, you know, I mean, really, if, if you, if you had to say, what are the real reasons? I loved languages. I loved writing and I had great teachers. Well, the, the elements of academic style is um, what brought your work to my attention. Um, I, I, it's, I would be one of those, should have been one of those people who sent you an email to say how much um, I learned from that book and um, how, what, what a really invaluable guide it's kind of been to me. Um, this, this book is um, equ equally great, I have to say. Um, it, Tell us how did how did you come to how did you come to write humanist reason? Well, so I I mean I it took me a long time longer than it had you know I mean I, longer than than the previous three books had taken and and I think at various moments in the trajectory of this book it had a different title um, it had very different kind of uh, structure and organization. It was more scholarly at one point, it had a very different third chapter. Um, but it came down to, I think one of the things that my books have consistently shared is that they are all really interested in, but maybe not so much true for the writing book, but, it, but the other books really interested in two different things that come together in this book. The first thing is I'm interested in ideas that seem incredibly attractive and powerful to me, but that I suspect are, because they're so attractive or powerful, I suspect they might be wrong or that there might be some problems mm -hmm. with them. Um, and, and I'm also attracted to ideas that seem to challenge at their deepest level, the ideas that I hold most dear. So that, that's, I mean, that's maybe part number one. And then part number two, which is something I've really been consistently interested in again for the last three books is Something like the tension between um, the example and the theory of something. So the tension between um, 
you know, what one does, especially in my field in literature, which is the tension between, you, you know, you're looking at a single novel, but you're doing work on a single novel or a single poem. And thanks to all the work you're doing and all the interpretive activity that you're doing, you end up saying things that draw very intimately from that piece of evidence, but are applicable broadly outside that piece of evidence. And I'm interested in that relationship, and I'm interested in in the whether, in fact, the theory ever fully frees itself from the sticky example, or whether, in fact, theories are always, in some sense, bound to the examples that they that they um, uh, begin with, and if if they remain bound, then can't be fully generalizable. That is, I, I'm, I've been interested in that kind of tension between the example and the general, or the particular and the general. Um, for a, for a long time. And so those come together in this book in, uh, in ways that involve recognizing the centrality to humanistic forms of knowledge of that very problem. Um, and, and recognizing in some respects, the ways in which, um, you know, the humanities fields, um, have, both adopted a very particular attitude towards that problem, but also have also been defined by their attitude in ways that I think are, you know, for the most part, um, not great, I guess, uh, both not true and not great. That is not true in the sense that I think the humanities have been defined by an attitude towards knowledge and, and, and have defined themselves by an attitude towards knowledge that I think is actually not correct. If you look at it, uh, in relation to what the humanities actually do, but also not great in the sense that it has not been uh, useful or good for the humanities to define themselves that way. Right. So, um, hmm. so I, uh, I attended an interdisciplinary PhD program for grad school. And um, when, in grad school, I learned that one of the first questions you're sort of supposed to ask when you're thinking about methodology and you're thinking about human subjects, research ethics is, is, is whether your study, um, the question you're asking is seeking quote unquote, generalizable knowledge. Um, and if the answer to that question is yes, then I was taught your research is probably scientific or it's social scientific. And if it's no, that is you're studying something unique, specific, per particular, then your study, then your study is probably humanistic. Um, you think that this distinction, or you argue in um, in uh, humanist reason, that this distinction is totally wrongheaded. <laughs> um, can you tell tell us why and and where does this distinction come from? So, I mean, yes, I, I think that that distinction is bogus, um, but I think it's completely understandable that you would be taught that. That is, I think that that distinction one of the things I show in the book. So the book is two things, which is to say it's, it's a history of the way in which the distinction, the precise distinction that you're articulating came to be defined as the primary distinction between two different forms of knowledge, the humanistic on one side and the scientific on the other with the scientific, largely including again, the social sciences, obviously you have the humanistic social sciences. So one of the ironies about the current division of knowledge, as we experience it today, is we have in some respects, three groups, humanities, social sciences, and natural sciences. But in fact, there's those three groups are actually split 
right down the middle into two large-scale fields, which is the scientific field, so the scientific social sciences or social sciences as it's done, you know, quantitatively with numbers and so on, and then the humanistic social sciences. So we have a, we have a tripartite division, which is actually a bipartite division. Um, mm-hmm. My argument in the book is that that specific structure, that is both the division of knowledge into three fields and the division of knowledge in some sense, so in three institutional fields, and then the division of knowledge into two methodological zones, the general or the generalizable law-oriented group and the non-generalizable particularistic group, dates from the late 1800s and specifically from the formation of those institutional structures in the German university. And so I won't go on about it here because you've read the book, but the argument is one of the things I do in the book is I trace the origin or a couple origin points of that division, which is incredibly powerful, dominant, and and dominant to the point that it can be taught as a kind of common sense as it was taught to you in, in school. But this common sense is not just the one of whatever particular faculty member introduced you to that subject or, or introduced it that way, but in fact, a way that many, many people think. And again, part of the argument in the book is not that this is some kind of bad way of thinking that denigrates the humanities as a kind of particularistic field of knowledge, but rather that this way of thinking about the humanities-science divide emerges from within the humanities themselves and has been regularly since the 1880s used to just from within the humanities to describe what make this makes the humanities better, more special, more interesting, more ethical than the sciences. So one of the things that's really interesting about the story of the humanities sciences division is that, in fact, the the very same structure, generalizable versus particular, that you've described, which in your description sounds like basically scientific knowledge is good and useful and humanistic mm-hmm. knowledge is just like talking about your feelings or making stuff up that's only good for you. So mm-hmm. it sounds like scientific knowledge is the awesome part of that and humanistic knowledge is kind of nonsense. Is used and in, med- and and has in medical been used. school. In medical school they call it non-cognitive skills. Right. Not, Which is like you know, actually like I was I was like not I when I heard that I thought non I really we don't use our brains at all for the right. <laughs> you know. Right. So that's so. the I mean that's the negative version of this story. That is the anti-humanistic version of this story, and that version is false for all kinds of reasons, and I'm happy to discuss. But Part of my point in the book is to show that, in fact, a, a kind of mirrored version of that story that has exactly the same logic is, in fact, part and parcel of how the humanities have defined themselves or humanists have defined the work that they're doing um, for the last hundred years, for reasons, again, that go back to this moment in the formation of the German university and expand outward from that moment. Um, so my argument in the book is not only that, you know, you know, not what one might expect, which is all these people saying humanities knowledge is dumb or or non-cognitive are wrong, but actually also all that all the people on the humanities side who are using similar arguments to argue that humanities knowledge is uniquely ethical and uniquely protected from the kinds of um, epistemological errors that take place in the sciences are actually also wrong. And they're wrong as a factual matter, that is to say that they're wrong. This is a false description of what humanist knowledge production looks like. And then the secondary argument is 
that not only is it false, but actually it's bad for the humanities because it, it basically encourages us in our living in a world in which, for instance, as I say in the book, everyone knows what the scientific method is and all school children uh, around the world are taught what the scientific method is. And so science is presented uh, from the get-go as a kind of method for truth discovery, whereas there is no equivalent of uh, a humanist method, partly not because the humanities don't have methods, but because, in fact, the humanities are considered not to be primarily a, a, a method of truth discovery. Uh, Claire, I'm going to ask you a weird mm -hmm. question about Twitter. <laughs> have you been following the MC Hammer uh, science versus philosophy controversy on Twitter that's taken place in the last week? I've, I've seen it. I've not been able to av um, avoid it. So uh, okay. I've, I've, I've seen bits and pieces of it. So, that, I mean, it's a perfect instance of this, which is MC Hammer, who apparently has been reading Foucault, mm -hmm. um, is responding to someone who says basically science is about finding truth. Philosophy is about, you know, opinions and so on and so forth. And so, so, and, and MC Hammer, for whatever reason, has then become adopted by all the humanist people I know because they like, they're sort of <laughs> cheering for him in this battle. But in any case, I mean, I, I will say that that's a, a good example of the complete ubiquity that it, of, of this specific debate. Um, and, you know, I have a position in the debate, but, but I, I, my argument would be that over and over when the debate is framed this way, given the way that our society is currently organized and organizes its knowledge, the humanities lose. And so part of the book is, most of the book is actually not trying to convince scientists or people who think the sciences are better than humanities to stop talking about things that way because they'll do what they want, but really to convince humanists themselves to stop talking about the humanities in the way that they do and start talking about it in slightly different ways. So the book is really um, interesting structurally. Um, and in the introduction, you write that there are, there tend to be these sort of two kinds of books about the humanities. So on the one hand, you have um, scholarship that's about the history of the humanities. You mentioned the German research university, like, you know, the, those sorts of um, serious scholarly peer-reviewed works. And then on the other hand, books that are taken to be more like manifestos about the current moment of crisis in the humanities and how, why the humanities are worth saving and why they must be saved. Um, and, and this book, Humanist Reason, really kind of tries to be both. So it, it situates the, the manifesto part comes out of the history. Can you talk a little bit about um, the book structure and how the sort of two halves of the book are related to each other? Well, so I, I think part of it is that my, my argument, often when people are making arguments about the humanities, they're making arguments about a very particular institutional formation that they argue should be preserved. Um, or they're making arguments about the nature of why the humanities are good arguments. Which is also fine. I feel like there are enough of those books and um, that people who will be convinced by those books have already been convinced by them. And so I didn't need to write another book like that. And I don't think anyone really necessarily needs to write. It. I mean, obviously, I'm sure someone will <laughs> and probably is right now writing another book like that. But I, I feel like those books, first of all, haven't done that much good. And second, um, uh, tend to be really focused on, on, on specific institutional structures. At the same time, I wanted to produce a defense of the humanities or a defense of humanist thinking. And, and, and really, a defense is probably the wrong way to talk about it. it an argument about humanist thinking that would clearly emerge from 
a historical context, but would show why, in fact, that historical context has given us a set of problems that we need then to push back against. So it was, it, it's a book where, you know, the first two chapters, the first chapter reads like a kind of pretty standard intellectual history chapter, which is to say it's a history of the university. There's lots of quotes, there's translations of things from German and so on and so forth. I do some mm -hmm. close reading um, and interpretation. I, you know, contextualize all sorts of stuff. And then the second chapter is really a, a chapter about the philosophy behind the theories of the humanities that emerge in the previous chapter. And the third chapter is is then quite different. And in some respects, the third chapter borrows a little bit of its attitude and its logic from the elements of academic style. So one of the things that I should explain what that book is for your listeners who don't know, mm -hmm. the, the main thing that the elements of academic style does is to break down into pieces the work of writing and the action of writing and to treat writing as essentially a craft that can be um, a craft whose practice can be improved in any individual who is willing to sort of learn a few rules and try a few experiments to get better at stuff. One of the things that I wrote that book to counter was a lot of other kinds of writing books, which tend to view writing as a matter of inspiration or as a matter of expression, my argument in elements was, you know, good writing tends to have these patterns or structures. Uh, and if you can master some of these, you'll become a better writer, whether or not, you know, you were a good writer in your heart to begin with. Um, and what, so, so that model of how to think about what writing is, then carries over to the third chapter of humanist reason. And third chapter of humanist reason is certainly less programmatic than the writing book, but the third chapter of Humanist Reason basically says, here are, here's a kind of structural breakdown of ways of thinking that are common to most humanistic activity. And there's nine of them. Um, and if you learn these as kind of basic principles, you will both understand what the humanities do and believe, but also you'll be, I think, implicitly a better humanistic thinker. So the book kind of pivots after chapters one and two, which are really scholarly in a much more conventional way, into a third chapter that is more like um, a manual in some respects. And insofar as it's a manual, it's also a description but insofar as it's a description, it's also a description of something that it's describing something that it exists, but I think has never really been described this way. And so it's part, it's hoping to do some of the work that all good description does, which is not only to paint the picture of something that exists, but to actually create a new picture of something that people hadn't quite seen in this way ever before. And by creating that new picture, then um, giving people a kind of manifesto or a set of beliefs that they can bring forward to bear on the problem of the humanities institutionally today. So in, in, in the book then differs from a lot of kind of um, manifestos for the humanities in not trying to justify the humanities, but trying to describe the humanities in ways that make it clear that they ought to then be justified and make it easier in some sense to justify them. And can you and and you you write though that that this description is not um, it doesn't come out it's 
and, and you call them articles, right? These kind of articles or these principles of humanistic reason um, that this doesn't, that they aren't de derived from first principles. These kind of aren't like they, you know, they didn't come down from heaven, but that you, you got them from history and lessons of, I think you write the history of humanistic truth seeking. Um, so there's a way in which they're historically grounded as well, I think. Is that right? Yes, 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 absolutely. So, so again, like if you if you go back 200 years, then the the, the articles of humanist reason would look quite different. I mean, because I mean, so so they're they're descriptive in that sense, and and part of what I mean, part of what I mean by that is that they're evidence based rather than you know in some sense. Uh, yeah, I, again, philosophically derived from a set of basic logical sort of principles and, 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 and so on. I'm basically what I'm doing is I'm looking at, you know, having read hundreds, if not thousands of articles and books, uh, written by humanist scholars, you know, going back a couple hundred years minimally. And I mean, I, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily think, I mean, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't think of Plato as a modern humanist or Aristotle or Confucius as a humanist. So, so really thinking about the modern disciplines of the humanities, having read those, these, these are the things that I think that humanists believe in general. That is, I, I think that you could take the articles that I'm, that I'm describing and go find a book from the 1950s and ask, does this book basically believe this thing? And the answer would be yes. Um, does it know it believes it? I, I don't always know. I mean, I, I think one of the things that I'm doing is I'm describing um, basic ways of thinking that are in some respects so simple that they are not frequently articulated or and, and not necessarily even frequently conscious, um, but are fundamental parts of how people become scholars of the humanities and publish work in the humanities that university presses and other scholars recognize as legitimate. So it's it's really a description of what what the, the basic underlying principles of humanistic scholarship as humanists recognize it today. Um, but again, it's a description that I think most humanists would not necessarily recognize themselves. Uh, because the things I'm describing are, I, I, as I say, largely um, below the level of observation or the level of consciousness. Can you give us an example? There are nine of these, these articles, principles. Yes. Um, I, I don't know that we have time to do all of them, but can you give us a couple of highlights? Well, so the first one, which is the easiest one, is, is this simple thing, uh, which is that uh, humanist reasoners, that is people who are trying to reason in, in, in humanistic ways, believe that all the... So, okay, let me, let me begin with some, a, a couple simpler things. Humanists in general study the work uh, or study the history and work and social interactions and processes and events and artifacts that characterize human societies. Right. Which means that humanists are, you know, begin with, you know, and can begin with easily the anthropological record of the development and evolution of human beings and extend all the way to the present. And that their field proper is anything humans have done. And what they try to do is they try to describe those things. They try to explain them. They try to understand whether there are or are not general laws that govern those things. Um, 
and they try to uh, understand the meaning of those things, both for the people living at the time and for the present. They do all kinds of work to, to grasp what you might think of as the epistemological totality. Uh, that is the whole set of things that can be thought and said uh, in an era as a way of understanding that era uh, or that particular circumstance or position. What that means is that humanists also, because human beings have never, and this is a, a, a an evidentiary statement uh, and a factual statement, have never lived outside of the environment of this planet and have never lived without interacting extensively with objects, non-human objects like tools, but also uh, gifts, uh, art, uh, artwork of all kinds, precious objects of all kinds, um, including, of course, the objects that are their own bodies. Um, and because humans have never lived in a circumstance in which they don't interact with the natural world, living and uh, uh, non-living, that is the geological world uh, of climate, but also the, the, the living world of, of nature and of animals, that humanists study and consider uh, human beings in their interactions with those things. So that's what humanists do. It's a big job and it's a complicated job. And one of the things that I think then, so we come, so if, if I say that's what humanists do, basically, this, these are, this is the list of things they study. First of all, I hope it's clear that, in fact, what humanists do is not confined at all to the departments of history, literature, philosophy, uh, or even sociology, anthropology, and so on, as they're conventionally conceived. That is, for me, you know, the study of uh, humanist study includes elements of geology, biology, physics. Um, astrophysics and astronomy, um, and medicine, obviously, um, and so on and so forth, right? So that's, that's, so part of what I'm trying to describe is a humanities that's, that's not delimited by, by, um, its institutional structure. Now, within that framework, what I think is that humanists in general believe that all objects, processes, or events take place and are determined partly but not entirely by a historical context. This, I think, is essentially uncontroversial. If you have mm -hmm. something to understand what that thing is, to understand how it works, you have to understand where, where, where it comes from, what the circumstances are that surround it. Um, one of the things I do when I teach uh, my class on video games is I show my students a picture of an Etruscan vase and I say, imagine that you dig up this vase. What kinds of questions can you ask about this vase? And we come up with questions, you know, who used it? Why was it used? Was it unique? Was it mass produced? Where was it produced? Was it made in the same place that it was, what it was used? Was it, uh, is, is it the kind of thing that could be bought and sold or could it only be given as a gift? Could it be used by men and women, slaves and non-slaves? Could it be used inside the home or outside the home? Is there a story to it? Is there, is what is, you know, what, and then you can ask all sorts of questions like, what is the technology that produced it? What kinds of clay, what kinds of paint produced this thing? What kinds of technological processes? Because to understand this one vase, you have to know all of those things in order to begin to get what it means, right? To understand what it means for the same reason that to understand any use of any word, you have to know the words that come before and after it and and true of any gesture right so this is at some level completely obvious but i think it needs to be said aloud and i think what humanists believe and this is a, but there's a strain of 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 warfare in inside humanism and also between the humanists and 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 you know certain versions of positivist science that says that ultimately if you could figure out absolutely everything about a thing you could determine its meaning fully and absolutely. 
And I think humanists in general don't believe that. That is, they believe that, uh, and, and again, on, on evidentiary grounds, they don't believe this because they like to feel this way. They believe this because history over and over shows them that this is true, that even if you know as much as is possible to know about a given society, nonetheless, there will be objects in that society that surprise you. There will be objects in that society that say new things. As you can imagine, if you knew absolutely, it, 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 I'll compare this to an example I use a couple of times in the book, uh, a simple physics problem, the movement of a set of billiard balls on a, on, a, on a table. If you know absolutely everything about a system, a simple physical system like this, you can, of course, wind it forward and backward as far forward and backward as you'd like and still be able to determine every single point uh, and position of the balls in relation to the other balls in relation to the table. So a system like that allows you to, through once you achieve a certain degree of knowledge, to show or determine the contents of that system forward and backward in time eternally on the basis of the full knowledge of a single point in that system. Full knowledge, including basically position, velocity, friction, coefficients, and so on. In the humanities, there is no social system for which that is true, right? There, there, there's no social system for which it is either possible to know. that there was, There's certainly no social system for which anyone has known this thing. And my guess is that there's probably there probably never will be. And the reason there never will be is, and again, but if I, I mean, you never say never, but the re, my guess is the reason that there never will be is inductive partly, which is there never has been. So odds are low that it's going to happen anytime soon. But two, if I had to make a more general argument about it, I would say something like the complexity of mind-based social systems is such that there will always be the possibility of surprise in the system. That would be a kind of general claim that I'd make. And I think humanists in general believe this. So one of the consequences for humanist reason that follows from this idea, which is that everything is partially determined, but not completely determined by its context, right? That is to say, you know, if, if you tell me your age, I mean, again, imagine all the things Google knows about you or Facebook knows about you, your age, your wealth, your, you know, your location and so on and so forth. They can make, of course, all kinds of predictions about the kinds of ads you'll click on, the kinds of news stories you'll like and so on and so forth, right? At the same time, they don't know everything about you. And at the same time, you're not identical to some other person who's exactly your age, has exactly your amount of money and so on and so forth, right? And your, your race and, and, and uh, gender status. That is, we know that there are, there are possibilities for escape in the system, even though, of course, in the history of human life, lots of people enjoy thinking about either utopian or dystopian versions of the system in which everything would be controlled, right? So that's, that means it's a fun thing to think about, but I think my claim would be it's never existed. So if you believe this, that is, if you understand and begin with the idea that when you're trying to think about the kinds of things humanists think about, you need to know a lot of context, but you need to see that things are always going to be escaping or exceeding the set of available contexts that, that are defined in the social space from which they emerge. Then what that means, what that entails as a matter of epistemological principle and practice is that you must study things that didn't happen but could have happened. So what that means is that to study, let's say, um, uh, to study a historical event, the election of Donald Trump, right, uh, in, in 2016, is to have to think about and understand what could have happened that didn't happen, which is to say Donald Trump could have not become president. 
among other things. There's lots of things that could have happened, right? Or people, you know, 20, or Jill Stein could have run differently, or Bernie Sanders could have not gotten in a fight with Hillary, or Hillary and Bill could have not done the whitewater thing, or the United States could have been less sexist, uh, and so on and so forth, right? You can make all sorts of uh, uh, predictions. So part of what my argument is, is then if things are determined by their context, but not absolutely so, then knowing what could have happened is part of understanding things even though it didn't happen, which means that part of the work of humanist reason is necessarily what you might call imaginative, but not imaginative because it's about, quote unquote, making things up or because it's about people saying, quote, whatever they want, or because it's non-cognitive because it's imaginative in that sense, but because in order to think seriously about what a situation was, how, what it meant, how it worked, you have to think about the things that didn't happen inside. So that's Article One. I mean, Article One goes on for a while, but but that's essentially Article One of of, of human of of the nine articles that I lay out. Is this is a basic structure of humanist reason, and a lot of what it entails, as you see, is insisting that the kinds of things that either humanists or non-humanists well, the kind of thing non-humanists sometimes criticize the humanities for, or sometimes the things that humanists argue make a kind of unique and special difference about humanity, are in fact not about some kind of ethical commitment to freedom, which is how you often see the description of the freedom from social context being described, but actually matters of epistemological seriousness that are based on the humanistic study of evidence, of the evidence of the past. Right? So that is a, a basic thing. And I'll tell, I want to add something, which I don't say in the book, but is really important, is that part of what that means is that the context for any of these things that we study, and again, the Trump election is a perfect example, the context for anything we study is never closed for as long as human society exists. Meaning that, in fact, the meaning of any historical event is partly going to be determined by things that happen in the future that we don't know about but we can maybe imagine. So for instance, consider again, having seen the last four years of Trump, the ways in which mid 20th century fascism has suddenly acquired a new historical relevance. Again, whether you think Trump is a fascist or not, the, the rise in interest in talking about fascism, is Trump fascist? Is he not fascist? Is this really like fascism? Well, it's not exactly like fascism and so on and so forth. My point is, is that these are arguments about, of course, Trump at some level, but they're also changes in the historical meaning of the mid 20th century and the political movements that are associated with it. So that what we thought those things meant, meant one thing when we thought, well, that's over and now we're never gonna have that again. And they mean a very different thing when all of a sudden a bunch of people start thinking, holy moly, we're about to have that same stuff happen. And well, so, so, an, an example might be historians of medicine are thinking about infectious disease totally differently now in an era of COVID-19, right? So all of a sudden, everyone is like rushing to edit the last chapter of their books to say, you know, in the edit, in the era right. of COVID, right? Yeah. Right. And this also changes pretty radically. I mean, I think you're going to see tons of new studies of 1918 not just from historians of medicine, but also I think you're going to see people writing books about plagues in the past. And, and then you're going to see people writing about books, uh, writing books about fictions of plagues, right? That is the, that, that these things that come to us from the past can be renewed 
in, in a really powerful and profound way by changes in the present. And the point is not that these things meant what they meant, and now we're twisting them to mean something else, but that the meaning of any event is determined contextually all the way forward, right? So if you say, what's the real meaning of, you know, the 1918, I'll tell you, well, I can tell you what it was, and I can tell you what it is now. Good Lord, did you hear that? Okay, I, my computer just made a very loud beep. I'm sorry, to it was an internet reminder. We'll have to cut that little bit out. Sorry about that. Um, let me co come back. So the real meaning of 1918 was one thing then. It's another thing now. And, you know, if, in fact, it turns out that we beat back the coronavirus and then, you know, 80 years from now, everyone's complacent and there's another one, it'll do something else then. Or if there's not, there'll, something else will happen. That is that, that these the meaning of these historical events, the significance and, and the uh, of, uh, you know, it's very, it's one thing to be the worst plague ever. And it's another thing to be the first in a series of really bad plagues that reappear chronically every hundred years. And we don't know which one the 1918 influenza was and won't know. And so, you, you know, the, the meaning of that thing is determined contextually, as I say, but is determined contextually in, in a much wider variety of contexts than we even have access to, which is why humanistic knowledge among other things, can use material from the past. It's why Aristotle and Plato and Confucius still have things to say to us today, even though in some sense, you know, they're very old, because in fact, our context changing, you know, including, for instance, a new article on, you know, what Greek life was like under Aristotle, will then, so new scholarship can do it, but also our lives can do it. Uh, our lives changing will then change the meaning and value of those texts. I want to make sure I, I I could talk about the articles all day long, but I want to make sure that we get to um, to your argument about method, um, because we all know the sciences, they have method. They have the scientific method. It's a series of steps. Right. Um, science scientists have reason and they have method. Um, your your book, Humanist Reasons, uh, um, outlines a humanistic method. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about right. what that looks like. Well, so let me say a couple of things. First of all, I mean, the, the, the distinction between the humanities and the natural sciences is, um, is, is a pretty modern distinction, as we know. Um, there, you know, I don't think it's necessarily the case that you can say, I mean, I think you can say that there is physics before Galileo easily, right? I mean, after all, the word physics is, is, is a Greek word. You can say that there's biology, right? That, that there, there, and so when we talk about scientific reason today, what we're taught and the scientific method, we're actually not talking about all of science from all of history, right? We're not talking about the method that people who, you know, believed in the humors used. I mean, even though in mm -hmm. fact, there are some overlaps, you know, a lot of, a lot of human knowing, even not, you know, non institutionalized knowing is, is about trial and error. Does this taste good? Does it not taste good? What happens when I set this on fire? What happens when I cook this in an oven as opposed to boil it in a pot? I mean, cooking, if you want to think about it as a procedure, is, is, a, is a knowledge procedure and, and an experimental procedure. And people have been cooking for a lot longer than they've been doing uh, uh, science. And there's a lot in common between, you know, again, basic living strategies and, and animals use these strategies too. I mean, is this good to eat? Is it not good to eat? Does it hurt when I do this? These are basic questions that you could certainly describe using some of the elements of what we use normally to describe the scientific method. So what happens is, of course, that in the modern period, the scientific method 
um, modifies itself through the work of lots of people in, in ways that then produce a kind of, um, an idea of modern science as somehow uniquely different, um, importantly different from the science of the previous era. And, 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 and that modern science produces immense technological achievements, which, you know, including vaccines and so on. Mm -hmm. The humanist reason that I'm describing is modern humanist reason, which is to say the humanist reason that borrows from that scientific revolution many of the basic principles that also shape that scientific revolution. And I think that that's not, you know, that, that I don't think that's particularly controversial. That is that I think that, that, that when I'm talking about humanistic method, part of what I'm thinking about is, is the humanistic method that characterizes the modern humanities and, and the ones that we know and, and live with. The trick with the humanistic method, and, and I, you know, I, I want to be very careful here because I, I think there, there, there are, the scientific method is a caricature of what scientists really do. Mm -hmm. And I say this not to mock or degrade anyone in science. I just, you know, it's, it's, it, it's taught this way. But if, you know, if you look at a description of what scientists really do, you know, say, how does a scientist really get to be a scientist? Well, you know, part of it involves all kinds of social structures and factors, mentoring, grant availability, uh, university uh, support for research or national and international support for research, um, talking with colleagues, hanging out, you know, shooting the breeze in the halls till something clicks, hearing about an idea and making a connection. There's, there's all kinds of stuff that isn't really captured by this, by this stripped down version of the scientific method, so-called. Um, nonetheless, you know, that's okay because we have models for a reason. Models are useful and they help us think through things. So the, the point is not we shouldn't have models. But the point is that when, when, I, when I imagine that we may nice to have a humanistic method, I'm not imagining that either science or the humanities could be reduced to either one of these methods. And I, I also want to insist that a lot of the things I'm talking about are designed to, put to bring the humanities closer, I think, to the idea of science than they are... Um, to bring science closer to the idea of the humanities. That is, I, I think that the humanities and science share many of the procedures that I'm, that I'm describing, um, including, and this is why I've been emphasizing it over and over here in our conversation, and I do this also in the book, including the mm -hmm. reliance on evidence to make claims. Because, mm -hmm. of course, one of the characters of the humanities is that it doesn't rely on evidence, it relies on feelings. So every time I say things like, you know, objects have a historical context and humanists believe this, Part of what I'm saying is humanists believe this because they have evidence that tells them that this is the case, not right. humanists believe this as a matter of faith, and then they find it in the world, right? So right. the humanistic method, I would say that, that if there's a humanistic method, the thing that it begins with, which often the sciences can skip, but not always, is the determination of a legitimate object. So... The thing about human life is that in the social, people determine objects all the time, right? They determine objects. So I say, this is a book or this is a, this is a chair. That's a determination of an object and it's a conventional determination. And you can you know, imagine, you know, we imagine that we have a determination of, um, imagine that we had two different words. We had a word for the whole hand and we just had a word for the palm of your hand. We do, in fact, right? Those are mm -hmm. determinations, right? They're determinations made by physical shape. We have words for feelings, right? You can say, what's the difference between jealousy and envy? People can begin to tell you. Uh, we also mm -hmm. know that there are cultures that have words for feelings that we don't have, 
That is, we maybe have the feelings, but we don't have the word, right? So schadenfreude. Uh, impfneid, I just learned today, is a German word for the envy you feel when other people have the vaccine and you don't. Oh, I've not heard that. Um, <laughs> That's a good yeah, word. So a useful word, right? A, a useful word. Um, so, but of course, you know, it's a feeling one has, but it simply hasn't been named, right? But so, so one of the things that we do with words and with concepts is we name and determine the boundaries of objects. And at the same time, we know that the first of all, that we know that there are concepts or forces that influence us that are not named by our society. Right. We know, for instance, that the, you know, the people who lived on Easter Island who basically deforested and then uh, depopulated their own island were the victims of forces that they may not have been able to describe in the ways that we did. We know that fire burning 3000 years ago used oxygen to burn, even though the people who were burning that fire didn't know what oxygen was or have a concept of oxygen. Right. We know that people have forms of trauma that are in their unconscious that shape their lives, even though they themselves can't recognize that shaping, right? Uh, e even something like personality, which we describe as, you know, a set of factors that shape, you know, so why does so-and-so always end up with guys who treat her badly, right? A kind of question that one could ask about somebody, right? Is about trying to describe or name a force that doesn't have a name or a shape that is nonetheless shaping someone. So humanists begin the work of thinking by considering the socially determined objects that are available to them, right? What, what do they mm -hmm. look like? What are they? What, what do people think they are? How do they use them? But also by trying to consider whether there are non-determined structures or patterns, whether these patterns are geological or climate oriented or environmental, as in the case of Easter Island, uh, or the Little Ice Age, which had huge effects on human culture, uh, or whether they're psychological. Um, you know, we know, for instance, and medical historians know this perfectly well, that you can increase the incidence of a disease by naming it and putting it in the DSM. Mm -hmm. Right. That there are certainly, you know, there, I read a fascinating article. This is about 20 years ago in the Atlantic about the disorder in which people acquire a psychological fetish for self amputation and the debate about whether to put it in the DSM because the people who were seeing patients with this knew that by naming it and putting it in the DSM, some people with what you might think of as a kind of inchoate psychological disorder of some kind would fasten upon the particular shape of this named and defined social structure. And then it, in some sense, acquire the disease, even though it wasn't a disease that they'd had to begin with. So we have all these examples. And, and, and so part of what I would, you know, do if I were trying to teach this to, I mean, if I were making a list is, you know, I would say, determine the shape of the object of your research. But that's a really complicated question. But you can begin by saying that, you know, what is a poem? Is a poem, imagine I have a poem for you. Mm -hmm. Is the object the poem? Or is it the poem and all the other poems written by the same poet? Because if you don't know about those, you can't read the poem by itself because you won't know. If I give you a poem and I tell you the poem is from 2020, or if I give you the same poem and I tell you it's from 1600, you'll have very different feelings. 
Right. Right. About, you know, if it's from 1600 and the guy's writing about, you know, Obama being president in 2008, you're going to think, oh my God, this is the most prescient poem. This guy must have had some kind of weird access to the future about a time traveler. So, right. So right. these, this, this beginning of the determination of the object is the beginning of humanist method. And you'll see already from all the examples that I've been giving you that in some sense, you could build an entire course around the very basic question of what is your object and keep talking about this for a long time before you developed any definitive rules. And we know there are some basic rules and so on, so we can go through them. But, but I would say that that's, that's a really important process. And I think that for, for me, you know, when you think about humanist reason, part of it is each of these objects that I'm describing is, is being described via a kind of looping mechanism. So you're, you're saying, what is the object here? What is an object that, that somehow is interesting to me? Interesting to me because other people are interested in it. Interesting to me because it seems to have something to say about something that I'm interested in, whatever it is. Right? And then you're looping back and forth between that object and its context until you feel like you have a handle on that object. And again, I don't, by object, I just mean a research object. So your research object could be a process, divorce, um, fa you know, family breakup. It could be a, a, a series of legal decisions. It could be the institutionalization of a form of medical care, whatever your object is. Right, right. Right. So part of a lot of the beginning or preliminary work of humanist work is working through that object. And if I were teaching this in a class, I would begin with, because I think it's easy to work with, with students, I would begin with a text. And I would begin with a text that had multiple versions or, or multiple, you know, so we know, for instance, we have texts that have come to us from the Greeks that we receive in multiple versions through Roman editions or sometimes Arabic editions. So we don't have the original. We just have versions of an original that have been changed in some way. So the question is, what's your object, right? Where, what is, is your object the original? How would you reconstruct that? So there's work you could do even with school students, right? In which you would show them how the basic work of reconstructing and working to build an object would in fact be, uh, could be among other things, that could be the end of humanist work, right? In right. fact, whole people have written whole books saying, this is what I think on the basis of all my research and philological study and so on and so forth, this is what I think this object probably looked like in its origin. Right, so that's, a, that's something you could do with students. And what you would do as you do, do that is you would introduce them to all of the basic articles, I mean, including the question of contextualization and freedom and so on and so forth, but also all of the sort of thing, all sorts of things we know about processes of historical change and transformation that would be incredibly fascinating uh, and, and, and so on. So, so, but imagine that then, you know, you want to take a second step in your humanist method. So it's not enough for you. Although again, as I say, it's, it's, you know, certainly 30 years ago and even today you could get tenure in a classics department by writing a book in which you did basically describe really well the original of some of these things. So this is legit humanist mm -hmm. research, but um, you know, you've done that. So you, you've done your object. And as you're figuring out what your object is, you're, you're, you're looping back and forth between contextualization and refining of the object. Right. And so you've got this process. Then I think that, you know, the next question you want to do, or you, the next thing you want to do is to say, why am I interested in this object? Right. This is, this is something that doesn't appear often in the description of the scientific method, but you know, there are things we can know that no one cares about. And so, you know, any scientist who begins, why am I interested in this? Like, if you say, why am I, why should anyone care about this thing that I'm interested in? That's actually a pretty important part of the scientific method as well. 
right? Why am I interested in this? What is this? What is this for? What am I able to do with this? That's going to change something about, and again, I would say that this is true for both science and the humanities, that is going to change something about the way that people today think. Because the end point of all scientific and humanistic research is the present or, or, or a future of the present in which people think differently. Why is it worth my time to, for instance, study patterns of um, redlining in American housing markets? Right. Uh, yeah. In the 1950s. What, what is what is that for? It's not so I can go back in time and change patterns of racial discrimination that force African-Americans out of uh, you know white neighborhoods and so on and so forth or devalue housing markets and units that are owned by African-Americans. It's so that I can do something in the present. Right. Uh, and, and again, that could be, you know, why do I need to understand, you know, why why am I working on quantum mechanics? I'm working on it because I want to I want to sort of, you know, see if we can develop technology to travel faster than light or to transfer information faster than light. Why, why am I, you know, why am I studying uh, the formation of the universe? Why am I studying um, whatever it is, right, that, that, that one studies and a research question. So for me, that's the second phase is what is this for? Having defined this object, what is this for? What debates or connections or ideas is this going to be able to sort of change in the present right why would i why would anyone care why and, and again it, the people who care could be a very small group of people could be a larger group of people right but orienting your research question towards that and then thinking about basically uh, i mean i think as a, as a kind of third or fourth step you know in this um Hold on, Claire, we need to pause for one second. I need to look something up in the book. Sure, sure. I'm, I'm coming to it, okay? But I need I need to remember the order of some of these things, sorry. And I hope I'm not going on too long about this, but- No, I, 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 was, actually, get... I was actually, it's really funny you said that. I was going to the book too, right, right at this moment, so. Okay. So, okay, right. All right, let's let's begin again. Okay. I think that once you once you define and shape the object, you've oriented toward a set of questions, right? That as you begin to analyze the object, I would say that the the one of the key elements of humanistic reason is the challenge of how do you generalize away from that object. The difference between that and something like a really standard version of science. If you say standard version of science, you're gonna you're gonna look at you know, a bunch of cells and you're going to test their behavior and you're going to basically produce a statistical model of their responses to a certain, um, you know, to a certain influence uh, of some kind. That part of what you're, you're doing in that moment is you're, you're trying to, you're trying to strip away as much as possible the external patterns and structures that keep you from generalizing. So you want to make sure that the cells are all roughly identical. You want to make sure they're stored at roughly the same temperatures. You want to make sure that you don't one day, you know, walk your culture through, uh, you know, a sunny atrium. And the next day you walk it through a, a darkened hallway. And so you end up with half the, half the cultures that get exposed to sunlight for 10 minutes. Right. So you, you're, you're trying to strip away things that block generalization. Right? Because otherwise, you're going, to have, you're going to have one result for the cells that were in the sun and one result for the cells that weren't in the sun, and that's not good. You can't generalize from all the cells. Now you just have sun cells and non-sun cells. In the humanities, our objects tend to be 
because of their um, complexity and richness in in the in, in the cultural context, it would be you know on the one hand you can take any one of us, you or me, and generalize. Mm-hmm. You know, imagine an alien species picks you or me off the planet and takes us into space and then asks everything they know. On the one hand, they could get some pretty good generalizations from just one of us about, you know, what humans are like and so on and so forth, right? On the other hand, they might not get everything because, of course, there are differences between you and me. Um, and the differences between you and me are relatively, you know, we're both living in the United States, we're both academics, uh, so on and so forth. You know, imagine they take a person from another country or another time, right? All of a sudden, you begin to run into some problems with generalization. This is true for novels, it's true for social processes, it's true for historical moments, and so on and so forth. So the challenge for humanist reason is to figure out since you don't have the ability to control in the way that in certain versions of scientific experiment, you can control the situation, you then have to generalize from your evidence without ever being able fully to let go of your evidence. Right. And that's a really interesting challenge. And one of the keys to to sort of how humanistic work goes well. So it, it, it would be a mistake, I think, to say that humanists don't generalize. Humanists generalize all the time, all the time. You know, if you, if you, if you walk into my department and say, what's the difference in, between the 19th century French novel and the 20th century French novel, or the French novel of the 1840s versus the French novel of the 1850s, I guarantee you, you'll find somebody who's going to tell you with reasonable confidence what that difference is on the basis of generalization, on the basis of a survey of the evidence that, you know, will be more or less as good as it gets. Right. So if you think again, on the example I use um, in, in the book over and over, uh, but it's a perfect example. If you think about the way that we all think about gender today, right, how gender works for all of us. All of that is the result of generalizations made on the basis of humanist research, much of which was done on the number of a very on the basis of a number of very small examples and you know thought experiments and so on. So the point is not that humanists don't or can't generalize, but that humanist generalization is always going to be imperfect for the reasons that I've described, which is you cannot control and close off the contextual structures, and because you cannot control and close off the future. Have we really found out what gender is? Do we now know? And, and for the rest of human history, people can just stop thinking about gender because Judith Butler figured it out, uh, you know, 20 years ago, and now we know when we're done. No, you know, I mean, I think it would be very foolish to think that. And again, why would it be foolish? Because on the basis of the historical evidence that I have in front of me, that would have been foolish to think in 1975 and in 1955 and in 1935 and in 1835 and so on. Despite the fact that, of course, at any one of those instances, I could find you someone who very confidently proclaimed, we've figured out everything we need to know about men and women and what how they work. So, you know, the, the problem of humanist knowledge is, I, again, this is not a flaw. It is an epistemological necessity of the fact that humanist knowledge is produced about beings who live socially in time and in context. It is, so, if it, 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 so part of what I would say is someone who says we know everything we need to know about gender is actually not being reasonable from a humanist point of view. Because that statement is epistemologically not justified by the evidence we have in front of us. So, 
as we're thinking about what does humanist reason look like, right? And again, you can imagine stepping through these things. How do you generalize from an example? You can, you know, you can easily imagine showing students this. And I think, again, if you think about the thought experiment of uh, that I've just given you, imagine, again, teaching that in a high school and saying, okay, look, we know that because everyone knows the problem of the specific in general. We all live with it. Right. I mean, we, everyone, right. it, that's not a, that's not a scholarly problem. You know, does the way, if, 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 if someone who you care about treats you badly once, does that mean that you shouldn't be their friend anymore? It depends on how bad it is. Right. We know that, you know, sometimes it's just a little bad. And so we, again, they apologize and we get over it. Right. There's all sorts of structures that, that we're evaluating all the time. Is this, you know, I, I ate asparagus one time. I didn't like it. Should I try it again? Same thing. Right. So, right. You can begin to show students how these processes that we're describing, which are, of course, also the same processes that science uses, turn out to be really interesting and complicated in the case of human objects or human-oriented objects uh, in ways that are very exciting. And so, uh, again, like imagine, imagine an assignment. I once gave my students an assignment to write, this was a long time ago, to write a guide. I said, you have to imagine an alien has come to this planet. And they're disguised as a member of your group, whatever your group is, your family, your circle of friends, um, what, you know, your fraternity or sorority, uh, the, the people who are in some club that you're in, some small group of people that you really know a lot about. And they have to pass. And your job is to write them a guide on how to behave at an event that you are at and that you, they, you will be at with them in some sort of context. And I had this amazing student write a wonderful guide for this alien visitor on how to behave at an African-American funeral in the South. Wow. And it was, it was extraordinary. It was an extraordinary anthropological document. And of course it didn't describe every funeral, but it certainly described the funerals she'd been to. And it described them by generalizing. I remember at one point she said, at, at this point, someone will fall out. And then she defined what falling out, you know, is, is kind of fake fainting right? She okay. defined what falling out was. And she, and then she described the kind of person who would fall out. She said, it will be, you know, be a woman, it'll be a woman of this age and so on and so forth. You know, all of these were generalizations based on a limited number of experiences, but she was doing humanistic work. And, and so I, I, you know, as you again, imagine what it would look like to teach humanistic method, create an object, locate the object in context, generalize from the object, that sequence it seems to me could easily be teachable in schools as a kind of guide or pathway to thinking about what humanist work does. And, and, you know, as with the first two steps where I say, create an object, go to the context, there's a looping there. Part of what you're doing is you're creating, you, you've got the object, you're looping into context that helps you define the object. Then you're moving forward saying, why do I do this? Now, how can I generalize from this? As you generalize from this, what you do is you compare this to other generalizations and other instances, and you have another looping sort of thing. Is this, is this, does this, is this, is this just funerals in my family? Is this funerals in, uh, you know, where, what are the limits? Is this all African-American funerals in the North and South, or is it just in the South? Is it just in Alabama and not Georgia, right? Those kinds of structures basically are what allow you to then build up a kind of generalization of some kind. And again, some generalizations can be enormous. This is how gender works in general. Some generalizations can be very small. This is how, uh, you know, a community of men hanging out in one coffee shop in Chicago, uh, uh, organize and live their lives, you know, which is uh, roughly the plot of, of um, Tally's Corner, the, the great work of mid-century sociology. So 
that would be, you know, and, and in the book, I have a kind of more step-by-step uh, you know, -step version of this, but that would be a kind of model of what does it look like to think as a humanist? Why is it interesting to think as a humanist? What's compelling about it? And I think it's a model also that I would be very surprised if, if the scientists uh, listening to your podcast would not see a lot of themselves in. Right. That, and... that is that, that, that for me, that I think that the grounds of reason that underlie the division between the science and humanities are much more, uh, much deeper than the sort of surface differences that divide them. Um, and, and I think often when those divisions divide them, that, that, that what they divide is the kinds of relatively easier certainty that are available when you are studying things that don't live in social spaces and don't have minds from the kinds of difficulties that get created when your main research object is, you know, not only an individual with a complex mind, but an individual who there's no such thing as an individual in some sense with a complex mind without a social surrounding that defines and shapes the parameters of that mind, as well as I should add a, a biological and evolutionary uh, context. But, but I think most immediately, you know, we're, we're dealing in the humanities with objects with, uh, that have a level of linguistic, um, social, emotional, structural complexity, historical complexity that simply forces us to make different kinds of claims um, and, and to work very hard to make the kinds of claims that in some cases, in certain situations, are made easy in science. And I think a model of, of human thought where the goal of the humanities is to one day get to the point where the sciences are, which is to say, easily make generalizable claims with full knowledge and confidence in their ability to work, which is, of course, a very silly model of the sciences, as we know, since the sciences are full of, right. of especially the history of medicine, full of mistakes and errors and, and confident, confidently made claims that turn out to be wrong. But in any case, the, the demand that the humanities live up to some model of scientific reason is, for me, simply unreasonable. That is to say, it does not correspond to the reality of the evidence and what the evidence shows us over and over are the epistemological processes that are required to develop strong understandings of it. Well, Eric, it, it, it really is a, a remarkable book and a remar remarkable argument. And the one of the best things about it, I think, is that is the fact that these that humanist reason, um, the principles or articles that you you outline and the methods that you describe are really um, available for everyone. You know, anyone can use them, um, not in the sense that they're they're sort of easy to do, but in the sense that they aren't owned by only professors of comparative literature, say, right? So they're not, right. they're not bound to the disciplines. Um, I think we have time for maybe just one more question before we wrap up. And um, you, you do get to a bit of a manifesto in the end where you talk a little bit ha about how um, the principles of humanistic reason, humanistic methods, um, if they were sort of widely adopted or widely, because I think they are widely practiced, but if they were recognized in the way that you describe, um, it might entail, it, it, it could inspire sort of structural changes. So how, yeah. how might we restructure the, the research university in a way that sort of 
better corresponds to the reasoning that the the people working within it are doing. Well, so I mean, I think that you know we're in a we're in a weird moment, and and one of the things I say in the book is that it's very hard to imagine restructuring the humanities because if for any of your listeners who've been in the humanities for the last forty or fifty years, anytime anyone in the university says restructuring, what we hear is uh, cuts, collapse. Cut. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you have a group of people who have lots of evidence to suggest when someone comes in suggesting we need a restructuring that it's going to be bad news and therefore who are incredibly hostile and resistant to the idea of restructuring. And so I want to say that. And that's not that hostility and resistance is not um, foolish. It's logical and evidence based. Um, That said, I think that it is. One of the things I think that 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 the sciences have actually helped us see in the last two decades is how important um, humanistic thought of the type that I'm describing is already to them. Um, I, you know, and so I I imagine, first of all, I'll just describe some changes that I think should happen in the sciences before describing the much more extensive changes that I think should happen in the humanities. I think that, you know, I have a friend who's an astronomer. I co-teach a class with him and, and you know, astronomy, um, like a lot of departments that do, you know, what you may think of as basic research, um, mm-hmm. struggles occasionally with making things relevant. There's a tendency to basically think that what students need to know is how to calculate um you know, uh, planetary masses and orbits, whereas in fact what students are really interested in is how the universe works. All right, but those classes tend to be the intro classes that are for dummies. But if you really want to be an astronomer, you end up having to do a lot of stuff that involves calculations. So there's a weird division in astronomy itself and in the sciences between what you do for 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 the gen ed students who aren't going to take another science classes, which you, you talk to them about all the interesting ideas um, and all the cool stuff, and then what you do at the upper level, which is you basically bombard people with um, a very intense you know shower of of what you might think of as mathematical or pseudo mathematical uh work and logic uh partly because what you're trying to do is weed out the ones who are going to go to grad school in your field and not i think this is a really bad way to run a discipline i think it's weird and sad that if you want to read galileo or darwin in the university you actually have to go to a literature department or a history department to do so um I, you know, so I would instantly, if I could wave a wand, I would instantly change all the science departments to include history of science and philosophy of science in the departments themselves, not just, and, and also to include, I think, high end. I mean, that is, that is, if you imagine a biology curriculum or a physics curriculum or a chemistry curriculum that is not structured as we, we do some of this for the kind of plebes, like our big gen ed, you know, the chemistry of life where we teach some basic principles and then, and then we have another curriculum, which is like organic and organic. And we drive that all the way up hardcore with TAs and so on and so forth. And that's the real curriculum. So imagine erasing that basic model and really imagining a science curriculum that integrates the kinds of things we're talking about, the kinds of interesting questions. So, you know, why should, you you know, imagine again, a, a course on the history of pandemics, where should that course be taught? Right. Or where should where should where where do you go to learn not about, you know, the the actual current functioning of the heart, but histories of the theories of the functioning of the heart? Where do you go to learn about Aristotle's physics 
it seems to me those things belong to the sciences and ought to belong to the sciences um, and, and, and ought to be taught. Now, the fact that they're not taught there means they're being taught elsewhere if they're being taught at all. But, you know, that seems to me to be a tragedy because it reinforces what I'm describing as the difference between the sort of chemistry curriculum for majors and the sort of, you know, chemistry of life gen ed type course. So I would like to see a world in which that entire structure was erased and in which, among other things, you know, writers of what you might think of as popular science. So people like Michio Kaku in physics um, uh, or there's a number of people in astronomy whose names are escaping me now are people who do archaeoastronomy. You know, it's incredibly, an incredibly interesting field are not considered to be losers who couldn't do the real research, but actually considered to be, you know, are full professors and, and are making decisions about admissions and the major and so on and so forth with along with the people who are doing what you might think of as the pure or hard research. Although again, both the word pure and the word hard are products of such bias and such screwed up and in the case of hard, obviously so gendered a structure as, you know, <laughs> in my world, you have to let, you know, it's about getting rid of that basic distinction, which is of course the distinction, which words are soft and math is hard and boys are hard and girls are soft and so on and so forth, you know, you can easily obviously map on to the entire university by the gender of their faculty, precisely the distinction I'm describing. Um, you know, and so that's bad, I'll just say. Um, on the humanistic side, I think that the changes required are much more, not required, but the changes I would like to see are much more radical. Um, and I think that one of the things that, that the humanities have done in order to try to find place in the university in order to compensate for their inferiority complex, uh, a legitimate inferiority complex, that is, in order to compensate for the fact that they're being treated as inferior um, mm -hmm. within the framework of modern knowledge and, and modern judgments about what counts as knowledge, um, is that they have driven their curriculum uh, largely in a direction that aims to create majors who are experts, quote unquote, in one thing in the way that someone who majors in chemistry or biology or engineering is an expert in that thing. Um, the reality is that to be a professional humanist scholar today, you can't be an expert in one field. You know, to be a professor of literature, you have to read widely in sociology, philosophy, art history, anthropology, um, history of science, um, history of politics, political theory, um, and so on, right? That, that is to say that, that to be a humanist scholar, we have a model of humanist scholarship, which is profoundly multidisciplinary and has to be multidisciplinary in order to be viable. And yet our majors basically teach our students that to be a major, whatever that means, then when the students are told they have to have a major, um, is that you have to do, you know, 12 courses in English or 12 courses in history. Um, but that's not, a, you know, so one of the things I would say is that that's just a bad theory of knowing. Um, and, and so one of the things that I propose in the book is, um, breaking down or breaking apart the structure of humanities majors and humanities programs into, um, what I call in the book modules. So what I imagine is if you just take all of your humanities faculty, all of your existing humanities faculty and possibly, you know, people, I'm including art history and so on. Um, and you basically get them to create four course or three course modules on topics and invite students to take those modules and topics. And I, I think that one of the things that that would do, I mean, again, there's a lot more about this in the book, but one of the things that that does is it would free students up to commit to specific ideas. And what is an English major? 
what does it mean? What is a history major? It's like a bunch of stuff. There's like a thousand ways to be a history major, right? You can do, you know, you can do all European history, you can do Asian history, so on. Uh, you can do social history or military history. And the same is true in English. I mean, although, you know, I guess you're, you're going to be reading books in English. But, you know, what if, in fact, you had modules that were centered, instead of being centered around names of disciplines, which are, after all, as far as I'm concerned, not very interesting, uh, mm -hmm. they were centered around good ideas, the best ideas that we had, the most exciting topics that we had. So imagine, imagine a module called, you know, um, uh, again, since it's on our mind, imagine a module called uh, Viruses and Pandemics. And in that module, you'd have an intro course, and then you'd have six or seven courses across the university that would fulfill that requirement. But some of them would be humanistic and some of them might be, um, you know, scientific. But a student could do that module. Or imagine a module called, um, is poverty necessary? Or you know, maybe if, if questions don't work, imagine a module called wealth and inequality that would include courses from history and economics, uh, literature, um, politics, sociology, anthropology. Um, imagine a module called, uh, you know, well, imagine a module called history of China, which would be very conventional, right? So you can imagine some very, you know, modules that we can, we already know in some sense that exist. Um, imagine a module called, um, you know, revolution. Imagine mm -hmm. a module called uh, the post-colonial experience, the black experience, uh, or, you know, uh, imagine a module called the 1920s, right? So, so you can have, or imagine a module called, um, you know, um, migration and immigration. Um, you can imagine each of these modules and, and imagine each of these modules was just a collection of courses that would count for the module. So you could have, you know, 20 courses that would possibly count for your migration immigration module. But imagine then what you'd say to students is choose these things that you care about, that you're interested in and learn something about them. And then imagine students putting together modules to create a curriculum for themselves that would, of course, you know, some, and you can imagine creating a curriculum that would look very much like a major. So someone does German language, then they do, you know, German history, and then they do German literature. So that's, you know, so they've right. got three modules, looks like a major in German, but that would be their major. You can imagine someone else doing our module on, you know, viruses and pandemic and a module on wealth and inequality, and then a module on, um, uh, let's say, uh, the politics of welfare reform and putting those three things together and thinking about, you know, becoming someone who works on some combination of those issues or someone who knows about some, some of those issues in ways that are powerful and meaningful. I think that one of the things that humanities have that the sciences often don't, especially like, you know, feels like engineering, where they're driving students towards a very specific job market. Nursing is another example where you're driving students towards a very specific job market and you're forced to accredit your students in relation to that job market. On the one hand, that's very nice because you you know what you're doing and you have a big accreditation agency and accredit, you know, whatever the official accreditation people, the American Society of Engineers or whatever it is, it tells you what your people have to study. On the other hand, it's a terrible trap. And the humanities have put themselves in that trap without actually having uh, of the equivalent job outcomes. So part of what I would suggest is that the humanities actually need to recognize their strengths. And that, that what I'm describing is not a collapse of the humanities, but a, but a real an, an enormous expansion of the humanities that begins by recognizing, as I hope you see in the names of these modules, as opposed to the names of the majors, so many of the things that we're already doing that are already so exciting about the, the ways that we think. Um, I, again, I was just imagining, I'm just thinking of colleagues, so imagining a module on, on addiction. But imagine a module on addiction that includes, you know, people doing work in, in, in medicine, but also people doing work in sociology and also people doing work on, you know, like imagine taking a, that you take a course on opium novels, of which there are plenty, uh, as part of that, 
Um, you know, and imagine that you take a course on sort of Chinese herbal medicine, the history, the history of Chinese herbal medicine. Uh, like, well, and, and Eric, just think about- I, I, Eric, I was ready to sign up before you even you, before you even gave me that module. I was like, what, un, what right. university is this? Can I teach there? Yeah. Anyway. So, I mean, to me, that's so exciting. And I think that, you know, I just I, I feel I mean, one of the things I'm trying to do with the book is just give people ways to feel really excited and powerful about what it is the humanities do. And so that's, you know, I mean, as you can tell, I get so excited about it. I just start naming different things. I've, I've made all of these up as we were talking. <laughs> and I, I was but like, yes, it's I'll, just I'll, I'll take that one and that one and also that one. So yeah, yeah. I can imagine them all anyway. Um, so if, and if you begin by saying, what are the humanities? And then you say, well, we're not, you know, we're not failing enrollments or we're not like particular non-generalizable knowledge. We're these topics that I'm just describing. That's what we are. And then you start talking, you know, then you can start walking and talking a little more proudly. That's part of what I'm trying to do with the book. Well, Eric, I, you know, I really, I, for this reader, at least you succeeded. It's, um, it's really, it's an exciting book um, and it's an inspiring book. And it's, it's not a Jeremiah about the death of the humanities or the crisis of the humanities at all. Um, we've taken up a lot of your time. Um let me just ask our, our traditional closing question, which is, what are you working on next? Are you um, are you going to teach all these modules? No, oh, well, you know, I'd love to. I mean, I, you know, if I, I, I'm, I, you know, I realize that given my where I am at Penn State, like if I were a dean, I guess I would be trying to do this, but I keep trying to convince deans to do it, and no one's taken me up on it. But I really feel like someone should. So, um, if you know, if someone wants to make me a dean, so I can try to put this into practice and work with a group of faculty to do it. That would be really fun um, and exciting. Um, what I'm working on now is I have a teach a giant class, like 300 student class on video game culture. And, um, and I'm trying to turn that class into a book, uh, which is called, I think it's called how to think about the world with video games. And it's basically what it really is, is an introduction for un two undergraduates about the complexity and richness and fun of thinking about objects of culture. But, you know, the way that the class works at Penn State is that, of course, m the vast majority of the students who take it are into video games and don't know anything about the humanities. In fact, I think the last time I taught it with 300 kids, I had four humanities majors and, you know, and then a ton of engineering Mm -hmm. students and computer science students, basically a bunch of students who are afraid of a traditional humanities class who are trying to fulfill their humanities requirement by taking a class on video games, which they think will be fun. And they're not wrong, but <laughs> you know, that's just the trick to get them in the door. And what the class is really about is about how culture works and how to think about it and, um, and you know, how technology interacts with, you know, with, with the ways that they live, um, how, you know, how gender operates in relation to culture, how language and history shape uh, who we are today, about how ideology and so on and so forth. So um, that's why the book is called How to Think About the World with Video Games. The video games is the is the trick to get people in the door, but um, but it's really a book about, you know, about that um, and about what it means to do that well. Well, <laughs> Eric, that sounds like a lot of fun. And um, I hope you'll come back to the New Books Network and, and talk to us about that one when it's out. Fingers crossed. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for coming to the show today. Yeah, thank you very much, Claire. This was really fun. Thank you so much.